uh, a drug and alcohol committee and we re-established everything from pretty much from scratch. So everything was from our website to the way we did our things in terms of our processes. And then that kind of um, was uh, also, uh, that's been probably about three years now. It's been, it's been, uh, it's been work, uh, actually running really, really well for the last three years. Mm, that's amazing. So mm. I, know, I know in our community, we have so much, uh, unfortunately, drug mm. and alcohol addiction, but mm. it's always swept under the rug and people hide, the, hide addicts in their house and try, try their best to you know, make sure that no one knows someone in our family has, has a problem. Mm. I see that a lot. And I know a lot of people suffer through, through drug and alcohol addiction mm. and use. So it's really good that we have something, right, that, mm. that we can go to. I think you're right. You know, the, the stigma that we have within our community uh, around these issues is, is pretty much prevalent in even living in a country like, you know, Australia or anywhere else. I mean, you, you'd probably be the same, you know, you, you, you're from the States. So it's exactly the same as well. Like, you know, um, that stigma still exists within our community. And, and we've, you know, we're trying to increase and raise awareness around this. We're trying to increase so much education um, around this issue because it is an epidemic. Um, it is it is a ma massive issue in our communities and, and, the, and the more you sort of hide away from it, the more you don't really focus on it, um, the harder it is for the person who's actually going through the addiction to be able to, uh, to come to terms or deal with it because, you know, as family members, nobody understands what they're going through. And usually that's, that's pretty much the narrative that they tell you is that, you know, my, my family don't get whatever it is that, that I'm going through. So mm. what's the process? Like, is it, is it normally the person themselves, like the addict themselves that will come to you or is it a family member that will try to, um, you know, intervene? And then, and then once someone comes, what, what do you do? So it's a combination of uh, both. So we have a referral process. So people can either contact our service directly or um, whether it's a family member, whether it's the person it's, uh, themselves or, um, or a third party acting on behalf of the person. So it could be like corrective services. It could be um, the hospital system really depends um, and they need to have consent for that to be able to make an appointment for the client. So those three are usually the processes and they can even access our website and send an inquiry through there, which usually is the way that we've been receiving a lot of the referrals. Once the referral comes through, we do an intake um, and at intake, we sort of uh, ascertain whether the person actually needs a comprehensive assessment. And once we've ascertained that, that the person actually needs comprehensive assessment, then we move to the next level and we do the assessment. So we book them in with a clinician and then the clinician will do the assessment. And in that, in your assessment, because drug and alcohol assessment needs to be very thorough, so in your assessment you sort of um, decide whether the person needs um, or is in need or they think that, that their drug and alcohol is actually an issue. So, they, um, so they, um, we decide you know, whether it would be conducive to them or whether uh, the best approach would be either to go to a rehab clinic or go to detox before counselling. Mm. And that usually is up to the discretion of the clinician. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so sometimes you would send them to a detox first, let them get mm. detox, and then come into therapy after that. I mean, if you really think about it, like, you know, in the drug and alcohol sector, it's extremely hard to have a client who is on heroin, for example, or uh, high doses of cocaine or um, even ice. Mm. 
to do therapy with someone who's still continuing to use, it's extremely difficult. So one of the best techniques that we also recommend is that, you know, get the detox done, then come into therapy and we can do counselling appropriately. So there is those options available for, for them to access. Mm-hmm. And then, and then when they do come into counselling, what's the what type of counselling do you do for them? Is it motivational interviewing? What? Um, in 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 the DNA field, yes, it's uh, you know lots of cognitive behaviour therapy mm-hmm. and uh, motivational interviewing. If you look at the models or the uh, the frameworks that uh, New South Wales Health currently use, it's uh, it is pretty much a very um, you know because of the programs that health run for drug and alcohol um, you have to have some 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 kind of an intervention that's going to be effective in the short term mm. so CBT is obviously um, in it, it can go for 12 session it can go for 15 or 16 sessions really depends on the client and it's usually not considered like um, it's not considered the same as psychotherapy where you can spend like a, a year or two with the client so we usually um, provide those options for them. So it could be CBT, it could be psychodynamic therapies, and it could also be like um, uh, motivational interviewing. Yeah. I mean, well, we, would, we would say, I mean, one of our clinicians in Hyatt Line is actually um, has a master's in psychotherapy, so we would recommend if, the, if that were the case that, um, because in psychotherapy you need to be trained for two years yeah. and to, be, to be able to be registered to provide that. So um, we, I usually don't recommend that unless you actually have the qualifications for it. True. Mm. What does what motivational interviewing entail? Um, so motivational interviewing has a very positive approach. So the whole purpose of MI is to actually get to uh, see where the client is at in terms of their, in terms of their journey. So, um, and there's a cycle that we sort of look at in motivational interviewing. So, you know, we need to uh, identify are they at that contemplative Phase or that pre-contemplation phase, mm. and then from there, are they, is it action-based? And then yeah. from there, you sort of follow that model um, to see whether they can actually reason. Um, and then you sort of roll with with the resistance of them wanting to quit and not wanting to quit. So it really, there's a lot there's a lot that goes goes on in motivational interviewing, but it has proven to be um, to be effective uh, for people who probably has um, addictions that aren't as as harsh, like people yeah. who aren't using like heroin or uh, ice for example mm-hmm. okay so it depends but, on the drug then what you what you use as well yeah and it depends on the client really like mm-hmm. you know when clients sort of um come into your sessions you have to as a psychologist you have to sort of use your clinical discretion to identify whether this particular therapy is going to be helpful for the client mm-hmm. not single therapy technique is helpful mm-hmm. so I'm, all, I'm always cognizant and conscious of that fact yeah. that um, you know not um, every single um, therapy technique uh, is, is helpful so you kind of um, you kind of have to sort of determine uh, with the client or with you know use your clinical discretion to identify whether um, whether you know this is um, this would be an appropriate therapy because you know sometimes people will come a lot of a lot of times I've had clients where they've come in and they've said you know what I'm actually not interested in this technique uh, I just want to talk today so you know so you so you provide that platform for them so yeah. where they can actually talk about whatever it is that they're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Uh, do do you also I mean obviously you're not administering uh, medicine, but. Mm-hmm. Do you work with a GP to administer certain type of medicines for people who are coming off of drugs as well, or is that something that they do independent of the service? 
Uh, it depends on the client, uh, once again. So it really depends on where they're at in terms of their addiction. So medication uh, really is uh, dependent upon uh, the presenting issue and the principal drug of concern. So if we're supposed to go down that route where the client all of a sudden has heightened levels of anxiety and uh, the, the, the drugs that they've used have actually made, made their anxiety a little bit worse, then yes, we will then um, work closely with either the psychiatrist or with the GP to see if we can uh, administer, you know, some, some sort of an anti-anxiety medication. Um, however, if there's uh, things like uh, heroin that's present or uh, things like, um, you know, uh, ice, uh, then there's other types of programs that they can access and that needs to be done solely either with the GP or at the um, inpatient clinics. Mm -hmm. So the inpatient clinics focus on, um, you know, uh, methadone. Uh, we have methadone clinics as well. Um, and then they also um, can focus on um, doing other sort of alternative Medica um, medications or drugs uh, as opposed to uh, using heroin. So something like Suboxone um, treatment and, um, you know, methadone, naloxone, just really depends on mm -hmm. the client. Mm. Cool. Now, same thing with, with – it's not only with drug and alcohol that people kind of hide their, their, mental, mm. their mental health issues, and especially in the community where there's the stigma of seeing mental health professionals – and things of this nature. How do you, how do we combat that? Because I know, at least for myself, for instance, I know I've met plenty of people who don't like the word psychology, or they feel that you know there has to be something extremely wrong with them to see a psychologist. And and then if they do, the psychologist won't be able to discuss with them anything that's you know close to their culture they won't understand their religion they won't understand their, mm. their perspective on the world and their life and because of that they they feel like seeking psychological help from mental health professionals is something that they they don't feel comfortable doing so how do we combat that what do it's we do to it's mm. very common you know i've seen it in you know in the last 14 years i think i've seen it and and, and it's the same issue so, uh, you know, it's usually either like, A, what can a psychologist do for me? Um, you know, how are they going to get rid of my problem? And if I end up seeing a psychologist, will she diagnose me or will he diagnose me with a disorder? Um, and then now I'm going to be labelled. Um, so there's, there's that stigma attached to our profession that when you see somebody, which is very unfortunate, that when you, when you see a psychologist, then you're automatically classified as mentally ill. Uh, now we all know that with mental Ill illness, there's lots of the severity levels. So you've got your mild, moderate, severe, to profound. And so if you have mild symptoms of anxiety or you have mild symptoms of um, depression, for example, you don't necessarily get, get classified with a mental health issue unless mm. you know the 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 fact that the issue has been prolonged for like six months or twelve months. Really, there's there's conditions that we have to abide by as well before we we give a diagnosis to a person. So it's that stigma and that taboo and those stereotypes still exist within our communities, unfortunately. So how do we combat from 
you know, I think for me, it's, it's these things are really important. So raising awareness and education that, uh, A, no, there's not, there's no shame if you actually seek help. You know, there's no shame for you to um, want to either fix yourself so you can better for the betterment of your family. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. So I think um, having, having education programs, having awareness uh, programs within our communities is actually helpful. We, even if it starts with small talks at, at, the, at the massages, for example, that's still, you know, that's still okay. And because social media is such a huge, pla- huge platform now, mm-hmm. even using social media to our advantage, that we can we can start to use that to combat uh, these stereotypes and these stigmas. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's that's probably a more a very rational way of trying to combat this, you know, ever ever lasting issue that doesn't seem to sort of go away, unfortunately. Yeah, it's weird. I know. Yeah. I, I I was talking to you to you about this before but when I was when I was at uni my honors thesis was about the stigma of seeking mm. mental health services in, in the Muslim community here in Sydney mm. and some very interesting data was uh, was extrapolated from the survey so it was mm. actually building upon a previous study and the study mm. looked at um, Arabic speaking and not only Arabic speaking I think it was I think there was some Farsi speaking as well but ulama basically scholars mm. in Sydney and there was there was a pool of 85 of them so it's 85 participants and mm. some were some were muslim some were christian even but the yeah. christians were arabic speaking christians mm. and they asked the scholars a number of questions about the ideology of of mental illness right and mm. the scholars gave their opinions about where they feel mental illness comes from and then obviously you know, what you think the ideology of a mental illness is will help determine where you'll go to seek help. So if you think mm. if you mm. think the mental illness stems from, you know, some spiritual source that you're you're either far away from God or you you have, you know, some kind of spiritual problem, then you're gonna yeah. go to a scholar to try to fix that. Right? Mm. Whereas if you mm. if you feel it's, you know, some some chemical imbalance in your brain then you might go to a psychiatrist to get medicine mm. so it, it it really matters what you think the mental illness stems from mm. and the data we got from the part from the participants in my study so the previous study looked at scholars and i looked at congregants so people who would go to the different masajids and and the different islamic programs and they all filled out surveys and one, I just remember one of the things stood out that so many of them thought that mental illness stems from gin. Mm, right? yes, it was, yes. it was, it was like forty percent. It's like wow, that was so big, and it was even, it was more in the congregants than in the scholars. So the scholars didn't think that gin played as big of a role as the congregants thought, which, which I had felt might be the opposite. When, like, mm-hmm. if, if you were to ask me before the survey, I would think it would be the opposite, but it was, it was that. Mm. And I felt that was, you know, that was amazing. Because, I mean, I know I get a lot of questions about gin, and I give, when I give speeches afterwards, a question and answer, people will always ask about gin. But mm. I never f- realized that it had such an important role in the mindset of people. Like, mm. that, was, that was shocking to me. Great. And it's very, I think what I've noticed is that it's become very prevalent now. For some reason, 
there's a lot of exposure and you know there's there's this uh people who actually call themselves like gin busters <laughs> where they, they go and try to you know um get whatever it is that you've been possessed with out of your system and i'm always conscious of the fact that you know that is um such you know that is so they're two separate things you know at the end of the day if you actually have a uh, a mental health condition, then that's a clinical issue, and that needs to be that needs to be looked at from from not just the sheikh uh, who has no experience in mental health or who has um, no knowledge of psychology or psychiatry or anything like that, or or somebody who who's like um what are they called like you know those gin busters or the <laughs> counselors they call themselves yeah that's that's that you know you don't you don't do that if you actually ha- are having hallucinations for example. Or if you happen to have schizophrenia and you are extremely delusional, you know, um, you actually need appropriate psychiatric and psychological treatment to be able to combat um, the, the, the illness itself. And part of that could be like pharmacotherapy. But it's unfortunate because we've kind of overlapped, I think, this whole, you know, mental health with you know, I must be possessed with um, with something. So, you know, and, and it's a shame, it really is, because I feel like um, you have so many wonderful professionals in the field who can actually help these people, but their first route is usually someone who isn't helpful and then it's very damaging for them to then go to the psychologist to undo everything. <laughs> I just, I, I, I'm going to break, I'm going to, I'll come back to this, but I just remembered a story. I was giving a speech once. And mm. I was on a stage, so sitting on a stage, right? So mm. the stage was only about, it wasn't very high off the ground. So I was mm. sitting on it and my feet were on the floor. Right? Mm. And mm. underneath the stage was hollow. So it was like a mm. curtain, but it was hollow. And I was giving a speech about jinn. Mm. And I was saying, yeah, um, you know, jinn exists. They're a creation of Allah and they exist. Mm. And then I was mentioning, you know, someone asked a question if they could... Uh, if they could come in human form or animal form. And I said, well, there are some hadith we have that jinn took animal form. Mm. And when I said that, the second I said that, a cat ran from underneath the stage out. (laughs) Wow. And and the people in the front row screamed. (laughs) It was the best best timing ever. Why is that funny? It's crazy. <laughs> mm. Well, anyways, but yeah. So one of the things one of the things you mentioned is that people will go to the scholars and the sheikhs, mm. and they will. That that's a first point of contact usually. Mm. Like, so for religious people who attend the masjids a lot, if they're having issues, mm. right, that they don't know they don't know what it is, right? So at mm. the beginning, you you can't self-diagnose yourself. You don't know what's going on. So you might hallucinate or you might you might be having certain thoughts or certain feelings and you're trying to figure out for yourself. And because they're they're close to the masjid and they have a good relationship with the scholar there, they go mm. to him at the beginning. And this happens a lot. Right? Mm. I know I know when when I'm at different Islamic centers, people come to me and they ask me mm. I've, I've had people say that they're hallucinating, people, all kinds of different issues. Mm. Right. Mm. And they come to me first and then you know, because I'm aware of the field and I know, like, now I have a psychology degree. But before then, I would mm. I would send them to the appropriate services. Mm. Do you think that's something we should do for our scholars is give them, like, maybe one of those 
mental health, um, what do they call them? Um, first aid yeah. courses, yeah. right? Yeah. And then yeah. just allow them to, like, give them that training so they could identify, all right, here, something's going on here, and you need to see this service. Mm-hmm. Right? And, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, it's very, uh, that needs to happen because, you know, our scholars are trained in Islamic uh, Islamic theology or, or Sharia, for example. So it really uh, kind of takes away from, you know, they don't have, uh, psychological knowledge. So, um, there, any, any advice that they give is usually going to come from a place of, uh, you know, Islamic principles. So, whereas psychology has a complete different focus. So, for me, yes, and I know for a fact that there's someone within the community who's actually running, uh, with a lot of the sheikhs or the mashaykh at, um, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it, ANIC, um, that have actually got training in, in this mm. particular area so it's sort of mental mental health first aid one-on-one kind of thing so the basics and then I usually say well if 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 the mosheikh are actually getting uh, training in this particular area and it's you know it's like a two or three day sort of a course then for me ongoing to that would be to either if someone is going to come to you as a sheikh and say you know I've got this 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 and you don't feel competent enough to be able to deal with that issue, then yes, you need to refer that person on. If a, if a client comes to you and says, you know, I've been suffering from major depression and two years ago I was actually diagnosed with clinical depression, then I don't think you are in a position to actually work with that client right. because major depression, as you would know, you know, you've, you've studied psychology, um, is not something that you can, implement, you know, enforce religion into it. It doesn't work like that. So you need to seek psychological help to be able to to be able to focus that and you know there are so many health professionals out there that actually have degrees in psych- uh, degrees in theology islamic theology for example so that that helps them you know mm-hmm. they, they have that awareness they have that understanding as well to be able to use or amalgamate uh, you know both uh, psychology and spirituality to be able to help the client which is really important as well because like mm-hmm. the research that i've seen is that if a client is religious and the client does have this connection to either the Quran or a hadith mm. or whatever whatever connection they have to religion, yes. if, if the therapist utilizes that in their therapy, it would be more effective. Absolutely, right? the person would reach benefits yeah. quicker. Absolutely, I did a I did my. Uh, you know, my master's thesis on drug and alcohol. And my focus was the, uh, you know, spirituality and whether in the drug and alcohol sector, because what I noticed over the years and working in health was that, you know, there's a lot of clients who would come and who would actually say that the first thing they wanted to do was focus on their religion. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was like, all right, well, if that's the case, then I want to do a research to see whether the use of this, because in, in conventional drug and alcohol therapy, we don't use spirituality unless it's requested by the client. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know what, is it, is, is it actually uh, effective to be able to, to be able to do that? So um, when I did the research, a lot of the results were that, yes, to use Islamic spirituality for people who actually have addictions is quite helpful. But you need to be trained in that as well, yeah. you know. You know, you need to understand what kind of a theoretical framework uh, that you're going to use that's going to be effective in your drug and alcohol treatment. So, um, yeah, and I think 
I think I think there's so much importance to that. And if usually if a client usually says, you know, I really want to focus on, um, uh, you know, uh, com- combating my addiction, but I want to do it from a a faith-based uh, therapy intervention, then, you know, that's that's the client's choice. So we give them that choice and we work with them. If you as a clinician or a psychologist or a counsellor, you're not trained in this particular area, then don't touch it, you know. We refer on to the appropriate people. Yeah. I always say people have expertise in specific areas for a particular reason. And so, it's true. And, and I don't know, in, in the seminaries and Islamic schools, we learn that as well, for instance... Mm-hmm. We're we're taught over and over again. If someone asks you a question, you don't know the answer to it. Say you don't know, mm-hmm. and there's no there's nothing wrong with saying you don't know, and then That's go right. research it or, or, you know, send the person to someone who does know. That's right. right. And, it, and but when it comes to any kind of therapy and counseling, mm. I feel that kind of goes out the window. So yeah. you have all, all the the marriage counseling and all you know mental health. Mm services that that people are providing without any expertise mm. and thinking that you know telling them to read a certain dua or a certain yeah. s- certain uh surah of the quran or something will magically cure you and yeah. that's all you have to do yeah and, and it surprises it surprises me that you know people uh think that you know that's going to be a solution to their never-ending mental health issues. I mean, I've had people who have had, you know, severe personality disorders. You know, you can't cure that with just, uh, you know, saying read a few verses from the Qur'an and inshallah things will be okay. Yeah, I'm not saying that it doesn't, but I'm also saying that there needs to be appropriate interventions put in place, perhaps in conjunction with that, mm. for it to be able to be effective, yeah, you know? Yeah, do both, definitely. Yeah. Mm. So... When I was doing research on religious-based therapy methods, right? So, for mm. instance, I was looking at religious-based CBT methods. Yeah. And these, there, there was, I think there was a Muslim one that I saw, but Muslim were Christian-based. And what they would do is they'd take the normal 10-session CBT program, and they'd say one of, one of the sessions is about forgiveness, for instance. Mm. Then mm. they'll go find a few verses of the Bible and the story of Jesus when he forgave someone. And they'll add that into the discussion, and that's yeah. how that's how they make it faith-based. Is that is it is what you're talking about something like that when it comes to drug and alcohol? Is uh, it more more involved than that? Um, no, I think there's a well, when, when, there's a process in. It's not a process, but you know, when the client re- sort of requests that, you know, I really want to focus on spirituality in these sessions, then we kind of have to look at um, what would be more practical interventions that we can utilize for the client. So if they say, uh, you know, I really want to quit marijuana, for example, in the drug and alcohol sector, then we need to come up with interventions to be able to help them from a spiritual perspective. So it could be like, you know, doing that. You know, I, in my research, I use um, Buddhism as a uh, Buddhism and um, um mindfulness as the basis of my theory so because those two mindfulness is very similar in the way that islamic spirituality or al-ihsan works so i used that and then i sort of changed um the concepts to suit it more to a to a muslim client so you know when we're talking about uh deep breathing you know we can do deep breathing but at the same time we can do dhikr of allah 
through the process mm. or um, you know mindfulness and even positive psychology has a huge focus on the the, the concept of great great being grateful for whatever you have mm. so even using that and implementing that so even after fajr for example or or the or even before uh, before you go to bed when you pray isha is that you do you nominate five things that you're grateful for that day you know whether it's your uh, you know you've got the roof over your head you've got your parents you've got your kids you're healthy you're you know you've, you've got money so you're grateful for that and th a lot of research now suggests that when you are uh, linking gratefulness it creates positivity and productivity for the whole day so neurologically you're training your brain to think positive it's, um, it's amazing there's so many positive psychology mm. um what's it called uh, interventions for gratefulness and that that's exactly one of them I do the exact same thing with with yeah. people I see too yeah. is that there's there's this uh, intervention they call three things you're grateful for or something like that and you're supposed to for a one week write down three things that you're grateful for that day and why yeah. you're grateful for them. and when yeah. I have Muslim clients I tell them you know there's traditions that we have that after prayer it's mustahab to go into sajda and to say, you know, shukr to Allah three times. Mm. And say, do that and not just say, you know, shukran Allah, shukran Allah, but say why. Mm. In your mm. own language, say, thank yeah. you know, I'm, I'm grateful to you, God, because of this and this yeah. and this. And then they, they, it seems to have a good effect. Like they enjoy doing it. And I know, like, I've incorporated it into my life. Like, I do it mm. all the time. It's consistency, right? Yeah. So people always have this misconception that, you know, if I if, if I were to give them a strategy, well, I've tried it like three times and it didn't work. Three yeah. times is not enough. Yeah. You know, perhaps sometimes you need to do things like 30 times for it to be, for it to actually have a little bit of an effect, right? Mm. So things take time, you know, interventions take time. So we always have these, uh, you know, perceptions of clients where they say, well, I tried this like two or three times the other day. That deep breathing technique didn't work. No, the deep breathing technique needs to be done every day at that same time and, you know, you, whatever time you've chosen and so forth. So it is, there's lots of those misconceptions in our, in our community around psychological interventions as well. It's uh, interesting, very interesting. And, and in spirituality, we are the same. Mm, like in spirituality, mm. we, we always tell people small, consistent steps are way more important than a spiritual binge or whatever for one night. Mm. One night, stay up all the way till Fajr, praying. Great, mm. that's that's mm. amazing. May Allah reward you and accept your worship. But yeah. the effect it's going to have on your relationship with, with God would be less mm. than doing a short dua every day for a year. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's been so many hadiths that talk about that, right? So there's, there's things that Rasulullah, peace be upon him, uh, says that, you know, uh, if you're going to, Allah loves the ones who uh, try harder to read the Qur'an and, and memorize it and slowly um, and th that are struggling to do it and that find it challenging as opposed to someone that's very eloquent and, you know, can do it can do it effortlessly. Mm. So there's all of that. I mean, even if we look at the, the you know, say, for example, alcoholism in Islam and, and the uh, abolishment of alcoholism, how was it actually done? Mm. You know, it was done through a stage-by-stage -stage process. It wasn't done where, you know, people were sort of, Rasulullah uh, upon him said, no, you have to stop now. You have to go abstinent, cold turkey. It doesn't work because we understand human behavior really well. You know, and our weakness is that sometimes we go back through to the same thing that we're very familiar with. You know, it's our 
comfort zone. It's our safety zone. So, um, so that's why people go back through through the lapse and then the relapse processes. So, you know, if you do it small step by step. And, you know, sometimes people say to me, uh, for example, in DNA, you know, I've never prayed for like five years and I really want to get into praying. I said, all right, so praying needs consistency, right? And to get your body into a particular routine, especially when you're waking up for Fajr, don't put too much pressure on yourself. People do this all the time. They, you know, I have to do the, the two, four rakah and I have to do the ten rakah for duhur and so forth. No, you know, the, the two rakah in, in Fajr, for example, is still considered okay because you're trying to go back into your religion and you're trying to do things step by step. So we, I, I try to give them those practical strategies as well that can actually help because I think there's so much information about, you know, Islam and people are not educated enough, you know, people, you know, listen to A, B and C and then there's lots of Chinese whispers that go around. So people don't really know even some of the basic, found, uh, you know, basic principles of Islamic, um, uh, of, of Islam to be able to do things. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's interesting. Mm. It is, it is. I noticed that um, you have, do you have a master's in theology as well? You mentioned that. Right? Yeah, yeah. And you're doing a PhD right now with some the, a faith-based um, yeah. project. What's your I'm PhD on? I'm doing a PhD on uh, compassion. So the basis of my PhD is compassion. So I want to see, I mean, there's a bit of discussion as to whether the focus should be what we're experiencing at the moment in terms of the pandemic, so uh, COVID-19. Um, but uh, but the basis of my PhD is a compassion uh, from a neuropsychological perspective. Um in, in comparison to an Islamic perspective, so I want to do I want to do bring the two together. So I want to bring psychology and Islam uh, together to focus purely on compassion, and perhaps even in in, in tragic times like you know, twenty twenty. Wow, that's good. Do you have a thesis already? Or like uh, a thesis question. The early early stages of my. I do have a thesis question, but um, okay. I'm in with my supervisors because I need to refine it. It's too broad yeah. of a question. Mm -hmm. um, but it, but the basis and the and the predominant foundation is is compassion. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I'd love mm. to read it when it's done. <laughs> Inshallah. <laughs> Inshallah. Inshallah. Pray and make dua for me. It goes well. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. All right. So I know there's there's people out there, and I'm I'm gonna put the websites to Hyatt House and Hyatt Line in the description below and everything. So if someone needs help, they could definitely yeah. find them. Um, but people just, just any person in the community that's feeling that they need help, mm. right? Do you think, do, do they go straight to the GP or do they call you guys or what's, what's the process? So Hayat House, uh, firstly is a free service. So you don't need a mental health care plan from your GP. Uh, you can contact our intake line and they, they will do an assessment or you can visit our website and, and fill in the contact form and we will give you, uh, one of our staff members will give you a call. So um, really it's a free service. So you're not really um, uh, only limited to 10 sessions that Medicare give you. So um, it's, it's funded purely by the community and it's one for the community. So um, uh, it's a really simple and easy process, So which, make, which takes away that burden of, oh, my goodness, I have to go to a GP and get a mental health care plan. Now I'm going to be labeled as, a, you know, as, a, as something really bad and I don't want that. So that takes away that. 
that stigma. So all you have to do is just contact our service and, and someone will be able to um, do the intake for you and then link you into the appropriate clinician. Uh, with Hayat Line, it's like a um, nine-to-five service and it's Monday to Friday, so uh, anybody can call within those timelines and they'll be able to speak to someone straight away. Nine, so it's only nine-to-five though, so... It is. It is nice. At the moment, it's a, it's a, we're trying to pilot run the the project to see how uh, to see traction. So, uh, but inshallah, if everything goes well, the intention is to to run it twenty four hours, seven days a week. Yeah, because I think the twenty four hours would be ideal. Mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of times people yeah. at night would be having you know those issues. Yeah, those most issues. definitely. Yeah, and that's yeah. when they'd want to call. Yeah. Mm. And I remember I, you know, I think all psychologists go through the lifeline, uh, lifeline journey at one point or another. Um, and uh, I remember, you know, 14 years ago when I did mine, um, I, I, you know, that's one of the things that we noticed was that the calls were a lot higher in the evenings and at, um, you know, early morning in comparison to during the day. Yeah, definitely. Because yeah. that's, that's when people are, are facing their crisis usually. That's right. That's right. Yeah. In the middle of the night. So what needs to happen for that to open up for, uh, 24 hours? Is it just funding? Um, uh, no, I don't think it's just funding. I think it, we need to see. It could be a combination of uh, funding, obviously, you know, the resources that we need, um, you know, uh, getting staff members to volunteer for, for that service uh, uh, and also, um, uh, you know, the whether, whether there's a need for it within mm-hmm. our community. So... Mm-hmm. We'd like to pilot run it now for the time being, nine to five. And if we feel that you know the calls are actually coming, like we there's if we have an answering machine, so if the calls are coming like at four or five o'clock in the morning and it's consistent for a period of time, then we may need to review review it again. Yeah. Yeah. Inshallah. Yeah. Inshallah. That's good. That's mm. good. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time and and having this talk with me. Um. The sister is my supervisor for psychology as well, so I learned a lot from you. And uh, anyone who's going through this process, I definitely suggest to contact uh, the sister. (laughs) I was was actually talking to a brother um, the other day who's in his, um, what's he doing? He's doing his his honors year right now. And so he's going to have to do, I think he's going to do the 4 plus 2. Is it still available, 4 plus 2? For the time being, I think so, yes. So yeah. he so he's planning on doing the four plus two, and he got a job somewhere as a as a counselor through mm-hmm. that is working with NDIS. I'm not sure exactly what he's doing, but he's doing something there, and mm-hmm. I'm sure his work is would be accepted through APRA when mm. when he gets yeah. it. So he'll but he will need an external supervisor. <laughs> so he asked me, "What are you doing?" And I I, I gave him your name. <laughs> I appreciate that. But it's good. I mean, especially because because of your experience in drug and alcohol, for sure. Like you've Mm. you've done a lot in that field. But not only that, you have experience. You know, wide range experience, Mm. and and also you know the the culture and the issues that people in the community would face. So if we're working with Muslim clients, it's definitely something Mm. that I felt was beneficial to. Yeah, to, to yeah. Learn from Absolutely. your insights and experiences, definitely. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I'm, I hope I've been helpful, definitely. and uh, I'm sure you're going to make a wonderful psychologist. Inshallah, inshallah. Yeah. With your du'as, inshallah. <laughs> You'll be fine. <laughs> oh, I took the test. By the way, I just did. I did my national exam yesterday. So, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. 
Um, mm. I don't know. So with every question, they give five responses. So you have five. It's a multiple choice test. Five um, answers to choose from. Yeah. I was easily. It was very easy to knock three out, and mm. not have to really examine two of them. Yeah. yeah. So two yeah. of them both looked like, and in many cases, they both looked like eh, I could go either way with these ones. But I was leaning more to one, and I'd go with that one. Mm. Um, but that was a little scary. Mm -hmm. And um, how many they, multiple choice? One hundred and fifty. One hundred fifty. Yeah. And they gave me a whole bunch of questions mm -hmm. about yeah. working. If you're going to some company and you're working in you know, this company hires you to do some kind of assessment on their employees. What would you do? And mm. how would you do it? And what? And so there's a lot of like organ, organizational psych stuff in it, which I don't know. Hopefully I, I was able to answer. There was a lot of um, school-based like psychology stuff, which was pretty easy. There, yeah. was, there was a bunch of um, intelligence test stuff. So a lot of whisk and waste stuff, which I knew. Mm -hmm. but, but there was a lot of K-10 and, um, yeah, K-10. So there's a lot of questions on K-10, which mm. I knew all the different, you know, subscales and all of that. But mm. they asked me, like, numbers. Like, if they got a 34, what what, would you, <laughs> what does this mean? I'm like, oh, man. So there's, there's, like, three or four questions with that that I know that I kind of guessed on those ones. Yeah. Um, and... I definitely need to get that test and, and administer it a few times so I could get mm -hmm. more familiarity with it. There yeah. was questions with, uh, there's a there's only a few questions with regards to drugs. So mm. like this particular drug, it, you know, what does it fall under? Antipsychotic, antidepressant, and then three, like three classifications that aren't even psychotropic drugs. So I know those three are out, but it was, but I, I think I got those ones right. Um, what else? Yeah, that's pretty much, there was some, some ethical questions. Um, there was a whole bunch of like suicidal ideation questions mm. where it's like, what should you do next? And the answer was always, um, do, a, do a risk assessment for him. Like, of course. <laughs> like, one of them was like, should you just let him leave and go home? I'm like, no. <laughs> you feel like the psychology uh, exam is like a personality assessment. <laughs> the same question, but worded differently. Yeah, it was, like, it was like five or six suicidal ideation questions. So yeah. I was like, all right, um, that, those are easy, hopefully. Um, so yeah. we'll see. Like, I, I think I did well. Like, I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if I passed. But it was, it was harder than I thought it would be as well. So, mm. like, I had a whole bunch of information in my head, but it was obviously because they give you um, vignettes, so it's about synthesizing mm. that information, putting it together, yeah. and trying to figure yeah. it out. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think you'll be fine. I mean, so you you will definitely pass. There's no way you you would fail yeah. this. Inshallah, you don't. Inshallah, inshallah. And there was there was only a few of like he's they're presenting with these symptoms. What's the most likely diagnosis? There's only like maybe ten, fifteen questions. Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Those are all easy. And they, they, I, I actually thought you would get more on diagnosis. I wish I would because yeah. those were all super easy for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's all right. You know, at least. Because everybody gets different types of questions. I mean, I remember one of my other interns, she got everything on drug and alcohol. I mean, sorry, pharmacotherapy. Yeah, I wish I got that too. I, I, I memorized <laughs> all the drugs. <laughs> yeah, it, it, they throw you right under the bus. They never give you what you study for. Yeah, but I don't know, it's, like a lot of it's just common sense stuff. Like a lot of it's 
because you're working in the field, all right, you, you already have a good understanding mm. of what's going on and you just got to kind of put it together to answer. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that's the beauty about having, you know, doing the four plus two because I think the exposure that you get, you don't get it from, a, you know, any other program. Um, you know, before they had the clinical registrar program for the masters, they didn't have, um, you know, you'd finish your masters and then you had to go work in the field. And that's always hard because you only get like three month stints in your master's program. Mm. So this, this is actually helpful. The four plus two and the five plus one, the practical experience that you get is, is fantastic. It sets you up really well for your professional professional life. Yeah, cool. Yeah. All right, cool. sister. Thank you All so much. Look after yourself. What? You haven't subscribed yet? Mate, get on the ball. Subscribe to the channel.